بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين ما شاء الله did I come in this Ramadan already what's going on ما شاء الله I thought there'd be like 200 people here like ما شاء الله الحمد لله الحمد لله hey but this is Canada right not just Canada this is Mississauga ما شاء الله ما شاء الله and what will make you understand what is Mississauga Subhanallah uh, if you don't know what Mississauga is come to my khutbah tomorrow I will mention Mississauga in the khutbah tomorrow so Bismillah. Let us begin, inshallah ta'ala. We have a lot to discuss, and today's topic is going to be a frank one. Why? Because Gaza is being bombed as we speak. Our countries are directly involved in genocide. Allah has blessed us, Muslims of Canada, America, Australia, England, to be the only Muslims in the entire globe to actually have some potential to bring about change from within the superpowers. And yet, so many of us are still involved in issues that are not as important as saving children's lives in Gaza. So, wallahi, it is not my intent to provoke, to bring about controversy, to create drama. But I'm sorry, a genocide is taking place. And we need to have a very, very frank conversation about what are our priorities as a Muslim ummah in this part of the world. We have to stop pretending that we have the luxury to split hairs over advanced issues of theology or fiqh or whatnot and realize we have bigger priorities. But in order to do that, we need to overcome certain misunderstandings that exist from within our own community. And so this is why I will give a frank talk. I have spoken about this topic multiple times in khutbahs, in academic lectures. And you should also be aware that this is actually my area of expertise. I mean, the theology of Islam, sectarianism, uh, what is called in English intellectual history, my master's and my PhD, and the bulk of my research that I do as an academic of Islam is about these issues of theology and methodology. And so this is exactly my area of expertise for the last 25 years. I graduated from the University of Medina in the College of Theology. My master's is, alhamdulillah, published. You can see it, 800 pages in Arabic, 850 pages. I went on, did the PhD again in Islamic theology and intellectual history. I have published papers. I have a book coming out in the academic world, again, about all of these topics. And so this is an area I have studied internally and also being a very active da'i, I have to make decisions externally as well, right? So this is an area very near and dear to me. And if you're not aware, then I myself have undergone a number of changes. If you are aware, then you know. If you're not, then the Yasir Qadi of today is not the Yasir Qadi of 15, 20, 30 years ago. And there are reasons for this. It's not because, astaghfirullah, I'm trying to please or placate. It's not because there's an element of watering down. No. It is because experience teaches you what books will not teach you. Experience teaches you what books will not teach you. Theory is one thing and practice is another. And you know the irony, we all know this in every single field. We know it in medicine, we know it in engineering, we know it. None of you, when you graduate from your bachelor's degree, takes your bachelor's degree knowledge and then applies it directly in the work. There's always a training. And you realize much of my training is absolutely new. I needed the bachelor's to walk in. 
But once I'm here, the stuff I'm learning is totally disconnected and different. The same thing applies to Islamic methodology. The same thing applies to theory in Islamic activism versus practicality in Islamic activism. When you are studying in a classroom, in a sanitized environment, when everybody is on the same wavelength, everybody's believing in your version of Islam, it's very easy to have theoretical guidelines. Now, get out of that classroom and get to a community like Isna and Mississauga. Get out of that sanitized version and now deal with people on the ground of all different persuasions, all different backgrounds, all different understandings. And all of a sudden, your theoretical abstract rules don't make any sense. This is what happened to yours truly. This is case exhibit A. I have no embarrassment in admitting that I came here with idealistic notions, naive notions. When I came from the University of Medina after having studied 10 years at one of the most advanced, most difficult, and also, to be brutally honest, one of the most ultra-conservative seminaries in the Muslim world. 10 years I was immersed in that bubble. And I came out thinking, what can these people teach me about anything? I know my tradition. I know the adilla. I know the evidences. But one thing after another, and interacting and making some blunders and causing harm, causing people to not want to pray in the masjid because of a fatwa or, or an idea you had. And you realize, hey, that theory doesn't work in practice and reality. And so I have to go back and rethink and get mashwara from my other peers and colleagues and so on. And so here I am, still the same person and yet not the same person. Still the same flesh and blood, but without a doubt, not the same ideas that I had and you know, I have no, no embarrassment to say this because wallahi, you know, Muhammad Ali has a statement. If you're Muhammad Ali the boxer, if your views at the age of 60 are exactly the same as they were when you were 30, it means you've wasted 30 years of your life. If your views when you're 60 years old, your opinions are exactly the same, this means you haven't learned anything. You have remained stagnant. So yes, without a doubt, my views have changed. And I know Many critics, and Allah has blessed me with, mashallah, plenty of critics. So be it. My goal is not to provoke the criticism or to answer to the criticism. Wallahi, my goal is the pleasure of Allah and the unification of the Muslim ummah as much as possible. So in the process, if the critics have their criticisms, no problem. Today will be a, sip, uh, a bit of an academic talk. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to summarize for you certain points um, and expound on them. And if you want to write these down, if you can, I have seven points. I like to be structured in my talks. I like to be analytical. I like to be a practical benefit. So I will have seven points. If you have something to write down, if you have your iPad or whatever, or God forbid, ancient technology called paper and pencil. The kids don't know what that is, right? Once upon a time, we had something called paper and pencil. And we had graphite that would actually leave a mark on, on trees that have been compressed. I know it sounds weird, the technology, but the children here, mashallah, some of them still have paper and pencil. Okay, so I'm going to literally dictate to you seven principles and I will explain them and then we'll open the floor for Q&A, inshallah ta'ala. And feel free to ask the most controversial questions. I'm not worried about difficult questions and I will share my worldview with you. The first principle I have about this topic of differences. Not every ikhtilaf should lead to a khilaf. I'll repeat, not every ikhtilaf should lead to a khilaf. 
Ikhtilaf means difference of opinion. Khilaf means difference in the hearts, difference in a community. Not every difference of opinion should result in a disunity. You can have difference of opinion and still have unity. Not every ikhtilaf should lead to a khilaf. And we see this principle in effect in the lifetime of the Prophet ﷺ, and then the era of the Sahaba and Tabi'un, and then continued up until our times. In the lifetime of the Prophet ﷺ, a direct command that our Prophet ﷺ gave was interpreted different ways by different Sahaba. And the Prophet ﷺ did not bring about a sense of disunity. In a famous incident reported in Bukhari and Muslim, our Prophet ﷺ, after the battle of Ahzab, after the battle of the trench, the Prophet ﷺ said to the companions that all of you wear your armor, wear your weaponry, and go to the traitorous, the treacherous tribe of the Banu Quraidah. It was the command was given before the battle, uh, before the Salat al Dhuhr. So at the time of Dhuhr, the announcement should have been made. And the Prophet ﷺ said, do not pray Asr except at the tribe of Banu Quraidah. This is a famous incident. Do not pray Asr except at the tribe of Banu Quraidah. Don't wait here for Asr. Don't do Asr in Medina. Walk. It's a two-hour walk. Walk or take your camel. Take your horses. Go to the tribe of Banu Quraidah. Now, by the time the news spread, the announcements came, the Prophet left before the By the time the Sahaba gathered in the masjid, what's going on? I thought the war was over. No, Jibreel came and said, we have to go there. By the time all of the Sahaba gathered in the masjid, it was already the time of Asr, but they're not allowed to pray Asr. So they said, Khalas, we'll continue walking to Banu Quraidah. So they're walking, walking, walking to Banu Quraidah. Guess what? Maghrib is going to set. They haven't prayed Asr. Maghrib is about to set. And they have not prayed Asr. The Sahaba differed. The Prophet wasn't waiting for them. Because he said to them, I'm expecting you there at Maghrib. Okay, things happen. They weren't able to get there. Now, the command, the hadith is there. You know, some simpletons say, what does the hadith say? Well, this is what the hadith says. The question is not, what does the hadith say? How do you interpret it? What is interpretation? So the Sahaba themselves began to differ. One group said, well, you know, obviously what he meant was to hurry up. We weren't able to hurry up. So now that Asr is going to go, we can't just see the sun set and not pray Asr. That's like Qaba. We're going to not pray Asr because of a misunderstanding. No, no, no. Let's pray Asr and then we'll explain to the Prophet that, hey, we were late in leaving. The other group said, no, no, no. He clearly said, don't pray Asr until you get to Banu Quraidah. And so even if the sun sets and even if it is Maghrib time, you know what? We're not going to pray Asr because that's what the hadith says. What were they to do? The Prophet is not amongst them. They're differing, they're debating. There was no animosity. Nobody called the other a kafir, no fatwas, no PDFs, no YouTube video refutations. No, the Sahaba had broader mentality than many of our youngsters do. The Sahaba understood that it's no big deal. They're trying their best. So listen, one group prayed, another group didn't pray. There was an actual ikhtilaf. One group prayed, another group did not pray. And then they both proceeded until they reached and they explained to the Prophet ﷺ. And guess what? The Prophet ﷺ did not get irritated at either of them. Because the both of them thought that they're following the sharia. The both of them 
took an evidence and they interpreted it in light of other evidences. And even though the interpretations were different, guess what? It was accepted that, you know what? This is an interpretation. This is no, and the Prophet he didn't criticize any of them. And in the era of the Sahaba, we have a number of differences of opinion. As for the differences of fiqh, where do you think these madahib come from? Where do you think we get four different schools of thought and we had more schools of thought? The Sahaba themselves gave different fatwas about different issues. And the Sahaba well understood that, you know what? This ikhtilaf is not a big deal. And they were still united in fiqh. And even theology, certain issues they disagreed about. Now, it is true. The issues they disagreed about were relatively trivial. There's no question about that. But you know, there weren't that major controversies at their time. And the point I want to stress, if they disagreed about some issues, even in aqidah, in theology, it is setting the cornerstone that, you know what? Even some differences in theology may be overlooked. The Sahaba disagreed amongst themselves. Ibn Abbas, Aisha, did the Prophet see Allah in Israel Mi'raj or not? This is a classic controversy within Sunni Islam. Why does it exist within Sunni Islam? Because the Sahaba themselves differed. One group said he saw Allah. And the other group said, no, he saw him with the qalb, not with the eyes. It's not a ru'ya bashariya, it's a ru'ya spirit, ru'aniya, for example, right? Another controversy in the time of the Sahaba is that if you go to the grave of the qabr of the dead person, can the dead person hear you or not? When you say, As-salamu alayka ya ahla qawm min al-muslim min al-mu'mineen, right? You say salam to your deceased relative, your mother, your father is buried. You go to their grave and you say salam to them. Does the dead person know that you are saying salam or not? This is a controversy that exists from the time of the Sahaba. Some Sahaba said, yes, he does. He is aware. He can hear you. And the other group said, no, he is not. And there are other examples as well. The point being, we see a spectrum of opinion in the lifetime of the Prophet and after his death. This shows us that it is not possible to have uniformity and it has never existed in the history of Islam. So, when it comes to differences of opinion, I'm being a bit simplistic here. Let's just say, let's start with a chart, a spectrum, okay? There's one category, let's say category one. These differences should be completely celebrated and respected. An example are the mainstream madahib of fiqh. Hanafi, Shafi'i, Maliki, Hanbali. And in the past, there were Zahiri, Awza'i. These are mainstream madahib. These should all be respected. And there is a statement attributed to the Sahaba. Some say it is a hadith. It is an ikhtilaf. It is a hadith or not. Ikhtilafu ummati rahma. If it's not a hadith, it's from the Sahaba. The ikhtilaf of the ummah of the Prophet is a type of mercy that Allah has given the people. Ikhtilafu ummati rahma. So this is my first principle. Not every ikhtilaf should lead to a khilaf. I said there are categories of ikhtilafat. The first category Differences of opinion that we should legitimately and genuinely respect. Not just tolerate, respect. And without a doubt, the obvious example that comes to mind are the mainstream madahib of Sunni Islam. Under this, the second category is that differences that, not necessarily respect them, but we acknowledge they have a level of legitimacy to them. We acknowledge that they have had 
evidences and scholars that have held them, even if we don't respect them. And examples of this can be what are called fringe opinions in the classical past of the ummah. It might not be mainstream, but you know, people have advocated them. And whether you like it or not, you don't have to respect it. But we will say, you know what, this is an opinion that we have documented evidence. It is something that has existed. An example for this is the position that some of the scholars of Sunni Islam advocated that Jahannam will eventually cease to exist and only Jannah will remain. And the people of Jahannam will be extinguished. There is an opinion, well-known, famous ulama have written treatises about it. Now, this is not a mainstream opinion at all. But there is an opinion out there that Allah's rahmah necessitates that eternal punishment does not exist. That eventually Jahannam will just cease to exist. And only Jannah will remain. And so the people of Jahannam will be extinguished. The people who rejected Allah and whatnot. And the argument, they say, what is the purpose of perpetual punishment? Of what is the benefit to be done by perpetual, perpetual? And they have evidences from the Quran and the evidences from the athar of the tabi'un and sahaba. I'll be the first to say, this is the fringe opinion. I'll be the first to say it. But I have met people in my office, youngsters in college, teenagers, people who are about to leave Islam and they have a list that Sheikh answered these questions to me. And on that list is this issue of Jahannam. And they will say, how can a God punish, 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 punish for no wisdom and reason? If I were to say to this person, you know what, this is a good question. Do you know there's actually another opinion by so-and-so? He actually says this. In this situation, to save this person's iman, I'm not saying anything factually incorrect. I'm literally saying there is an opinion, which there is, by so-and-so, which there is, in which he advocated that Jahannam will cease to exist. Next point. And I dealt with every one of his seven, eight points in a manner that he was actually convinced. Now, some of you might say, oh, but astaghfirullah, you preached a fringe opinion. And my response is to have this person in Islam is better with that fringe opinion than him leaving Islam. So not so. this is the second category, and that is opinions that are deemed to be fringe. We don't necessarily endorse them. We don't necessarily uh, you know, respect them. Is that a question for me? MashaAllah. We don't necessarily respect them, but we will leave, leave them be. Okay. Now, this is the second category. The third category, opinions we do not respect. Opinions we do not respect, but we must tolerate. We must tolerate them. And this is the example of opinions that are incorrect. We don't like them. We wish they didn't exist. But, and we might even refute them verbally. We don't respect them. But we have to be civil. And the classic example for this is non-Sunni movements. Any movement that, astaghfirullah, has opinions about the Sahaba that are wrong. That's very problematic. I don't respect that at all. Wallahi, I don't respect it. But what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Your hatred, is that going to eliminate this group? You spouting anger constantly. Is that going to change the situation? What must we do then? Look at the world around you. In our own country. How many of you are from Pakistan? Raise your hand. Last week or two weeks ago, there was a bomb between Sunni Shia. Do you think this is wise? Do you think this is what we want? By constantly fomenting hatred, hatred, hatred? What is the fa'idah of doing that? So even if we don't respect I don't have to constantly provoke hatred. 
live and let live and Allah will judge on Qiyamah. You are not Malik. You are not Rabb. You are not Maliki Yawmiddin. Allah is. Yes, if somebody asks me, I will say, Abu Bakr and Umar radiallahu anhum are the greatest Sahaba of any Prophet. And anybody who disrespects them, my heart has zero respect. I will say this. But must I constantly foment hatred? Must I constantly keep on riling up the crowd and make them angry and hate against a group that they barely interact with? What's the fayda of that? Not every ikhtilaf should lead to a khilaf. This is my first principle. And we can ask questions at the end. The second question, the second principle. The religion of Islam is broader than any one firqa, any one madhab, any one maslak, any one jama'ah. Those who follow the Quran, those who are from the ummah of the Prophet ﷺ, they are far bigger than any one madhab or maslak or firqa. So your firqa, your group, your manhaj does not represent the total followers of the Prophet ﷺ. We have to understand this point here. That Allegiance is not going to be based upon your jama'ah. It is based upon Allah and His Messenger. So anybody who has loyalty to Allah, who believes in Allah as a Rabb, and who believes in the Prophet as a Prophet, they are from the Ummah of the Prophet even if they don't belong to your jama'ah, even if they don't belong to your firqa, even if they don't belong to your particular understanding of Islam. And this leads us to the famous hadith, which I have discussed in a lot more detail. We don't have time to discuss it in academic detail, but the famous hadith that my ummah shall be divided into 73 groups, right? It's a famous hadith. Some scholars made it weak. Other scholars made it hasan. Uh, it is a well-known hadith. And I don't even need to go to weak or hasan or da'if or whatnot. The hadith is very clear, actually. And Imam al-San'ani and others, they interpret it in a very logical manner. Read the hadith. My ummah shall divide into 73 groups. This means all of these 73 are what? My ummah. We're talking about Muslims here. We're talking about the people who follow the Messenger. So anybody who then says these people are not Muslims has disobeyed. The Prophet ﷺ. He literally said, My, he ascribed these people to him. Who are you to say they don't belong to him? You understand this point here? Now, I'm not saying all of them are the same. He clearly said that there are some problems here. But as Imam al-San'ani says, Imam al-San'ani is a famous scholar of the past, not me. Imam al-San'ani said, the ummah, the, the jama'ah that the Prophet ﷺ said is the correct jama'ah. This is the default of the Muslim ummah. It doesn't have a name. It is the default. The bulk of the ummah comes under this mainstream jama'ah. And as for the other 71 or 72 that are misguided, he says, put together, they are a small fraction compared to the one that is guided. In other words, do not look at one that is guided. 72 is misguided. Therefore, one out of 72 people are going to be correctly guided. No. This is incorrect fraction. You're assuming every group has the same quantity. No. The group that is following the Quran and following the Prophet ﷺ, that is the correct group. And that is the default of the ummah. 
All the other groups combined are minuscule compared to the default. Anybody who says, my group, and he's talking about the five people in his father's basement as he makes the day of the rest of the ummah. Anybody who says, my sheikh, and he has only a small group of people. Anybody who says, my manhaj, and they're literally one small mosque in all of Toronto on that manhaj. Automatically, you have disqualified yourself from being of the correct group. Because the correct group is the default of the ummah. The bulk of the ummah is upon the correct methodology. How do we know? Because our Prophet himself told us. He said to us, follow the siwad al-a'zam. Follow the bulk of the ummah. He said to us that, inna ummati ummatan marhuma. My ummah is a forgiven ummah. An ummah that Allah has shown mercy to. He said to us, I, I expect my ummah by itself to be two-thirds of the people of Jannah. And here we have every group wants to make takfir of everybody else. Wallahi, I thank Allah that none of these people holds the keys to Jannah or else Jannah would be empty. Wallahi, I swear to you, any jama'ah that makes takfir tabdiyah of the, all the other jama'at, they have shown that they are mistaken simply by their fanaticism. The default of the ummah is that it is upon good. And the bulk of the ummah is correctly guided. Why do we know this? Because, listen to this carefully, it's a theological point. Is there a prophet after the Prophet Yes or no? No. What does this mean about the message of the Prophet then? It means his message is going to be what? True, but what does it imply about the message? Preserved. Protected. Why were previous prophets had to be sent other prophets? Because their messages were what? Corrupted. Their messages were misguided. Their messages were lost. The fact that our Prophet is the final prophet and there's no prophet after him automatically implies, this is a necessary corollary, a necessary follow-up that the bulk of those who follow this prophet shall be within the rightly guided ummah. That's why we don't need another prophet. And wallahi, the average Muslim knows this. You know what corrupts you? Sectarian scholars corrupts you. The average person, the average uncle and auntie knows this, that the bulk of the ummah has upon, good upon them. This is the fitra, they know this. It's only sectarian scholars that say, oh, look at where he places his hand, judge him based upon that. Ask some abstract question about theology you nobody, nobody has ever heard of. And based on the answer, then you classify him, you categorize him, put him into a pigeonhole. Before you met that sectarian scholar, your fitra, your heart told you, any Muslim who loves Allah and his messenger is a good Muslim. That's the way the world works, right? And I'm telling you, that is what the Quran and Sunnah tells us to. The default of Islam is that it is pure and good. The default of the ummah, they love Allah and they love the messenger. And they shall enter Jannah if they follow the basics of Islam. Go back to the hadith of the Bedouin. The famous hadith. Ya Rasulullah, how many prayers? Five. That's all? Yeah, that's all. How many? How much zakat? Oh, two poor That's it, that's it. How much siyam? One month. One month, that's it. Ya Rasulullah, if I do this and I live a good life, I make the halal, I make the haram, shall I enter Jannah? He said, yes. Khalas. Make Islam simple, not because we're trying to water Islam down, but guess what? Surprise, surprise. Islam is simple. Islam is easy. So the second point is that 
the ummah of the Prophet is bigger than any one firqa, any one maslak, any one madhab, any one jama'ah. Anybody who says the kalima becomes a part of that ummah. The third point. The third point. Differences in how to revive the ummah should be viewed as complementary and not in competition. Differences in methodology should be viewed as complementary. Generally speaking, what do I mean by this? And again, let me be explicit here. Some movements, they prioritize some aspects of the religion. Other movements prioritize other aspects of the religion. And as long as these movements prioritize legitimate aspects of the religion, there's good in all of them. Because Allah did not create us to be exactly the same. Some people are more interested in the academic study of Islam. Other people are more interested in extra ibadat. Other people are more interested in living a very simple and zahid life, yani avoiding the luxuries. Other people, they don't have this. They just want to do the bare minimum and move on. And Allah has revealed a religion that caters to all of these groups. From the time of the Sahaba, some of them excelled in one field and not in others. And the ummah needed this diversity. Khalid ibn al-Walid radiallahu was needed for his speciality. He wasn't an expert in fiqh. He never gave fatwa. He didn't narrate lots of hadith. We didn't need him for that. Abu Huraira was not known to be at the forefront of the battlefield. He wasn't known for that. We didn't need him for that. Mu'ad ibn Jabal was the academic, the, 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 the mufti. We needed him for that. Every one of the Hassan ibn Thabit was a poet. We needed the artist. He was a poet. He was not able to participate in, in war. He couldn't hold a spear. We didn't need him to hold a spear. We needed him for his poetry. Every one of us has a role to play. And as long as we understand that this diversity is something that is natural and that the aspect that the group is calling for overall is within the fold of Islam, well then so be it. Good for us. So for example, you have some movements I don't want to cause controversy, but I mean, I don't see a problem mentioning them by name because I'm praising them. I'm not saying anything wrong. For example, the Deobandi movement, right? The Deobandi movement, I'm going to be saying praiseworthy things. Don't worry. Don't splice my words and say read negative. The Deobandi movement, mashallah, tabarakallah, they're doing such amazing work in preserving a version of fiqh, the Hanafi fiqh. And they're very concerned about everybody following Hanafi fiqh. And mashallah, they have a system. And wallahi, if this was the only benefit for them, we would owe them so much. The Deobandis, may Allah bless and protect them. The number one contribution to the ummah, they emphasize hifd of the Quran. Wherever they go, mashallah, tabarakallah, just spouting huffaz. We thank Allah for the Deobandi movement. I am not Deobandi. I thank Allah for the Deobandi movement. The tablighi jama'ah, yes, I'm going to go there, guys, don't worry. The tablighi jama'ah, mashallah, tabarakallah, good people. You meet them and you sense purity. You sense innocence. You sense spirituality. And they want you to come and pray in jama'ah and go with jama'ah and go in khuruj and this and that and, you know, make sure the beard is longer and good. Okay, mashallah, good reminders. Jazakallah khair. We need these reminders. May Allah bless them. The jama'at islami, yeah, I'm going there, don't worry. The jama'at islami, the ikhwan, they bring an important element. Guys, you know, all of this ibadah is good, but we need also to impact politics as well. I mean, you have to build a society. Didn't the Prophet bring about a Medina society? 
And that's a legit point. I mean, he did, without a doubt, right? The Salafis, yes, them as well. Aqeedah, Aqeedah, Aqeedah. And yeah, okay, it's good. We need to know what is Aqeedah. Teach us, okay. Wafi kullin khair. Everyone is within that mainstream. Everyone is interested in, in one aspect and they're doing something that they feel is good for the ummah. So take the good and try your best to minimize the bad and understand fi kullin khair. Not everybody is going to be interested in politics. Not everybody is going to be interested in academic study of Islam. Not everybody is going to be interested in a specific Hanafi fiqh or whatnot. But within the ummah, you will find diversity. And some people will flourish with that interpretation. And so, mashallah, they join it and they go far in the deen. Without that movement, they couldn't have gone far in the deen. Give them credit for that. And see that they are drawing closer to Allah and His Messenger. So, differences in methodology should not be viewed as competing. Ya ikhwa, Muslims. Wallahi, it doesn't matter whether your children are Salafi or Deobandi or Ahli Hadith or Sufi. In this environment, if they're praying five times a day, if they're avoiding the major sins, Alhamdulillah, Allah has blessed you with a treasure more precious than this whole world and all that is in it. Do you not understand this point? Who cares which specific understanding of Islam? If they're praying five times a day, they're wanting to come to the masjid. They have an interest in Islam in whatever level, however level, whether it is Hanafi fiqh books, whether it is Tahawi and Aqidah Tahawi and Ibn Taymiyyah, whether it is revivalism and Sayyid Qutb, whatever it might be, isn't it better than watching HBO and Astaghfirullah Game of Thrones? Let's be honest here. Isn't it better than the filth around us? Thank Allah that your children are involved with some type of activism rather than nitpick about, oh, but your version isn't the version of my grandfather. Don't worry about it. It's all good. Different methods of revival appeal to different minds. Different minds. Different psychologies. As I said, some people appreciate spirituality and mysticism. And so they find comfort in tasawwuf. Good for them. Other people appreciate activism. I need to be, and Allah created people this way. So good for them if they find comfort in a Islamic activism. Other people appreciate the academic study. I'm one of them. I love reading abstract books written a thousand years ago. That's when I find myself closest to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Literally, reading abstract historical controversies of Nishapud in the third century, my mind is just a buzz. If you listen to my library chats, Allah created me that way. That's the way I am. I didn't choose this path, right? And guess what? You need a nerdy, geeky person like me too. Okay, alhamdulillah. I hope I'm also of some benefit of the ummah. Everybody has a role to play. Rather than view it as competition, broaden your horizon and understand fi kullin khair. So this is my third point here. Differences on how to revive should be viewed as complementary. And what this means, to be brutally honest, all of these revivalistic movements around us today, all of them, we should stop viewing them as competition against each other. All of the mujaddids of the last three, four, five hundred years, look up to them and respect them. And yes, you might yourself like one more than the other. No problem. I get it. You yourself might be attracted to Shah Waliullah Dehlawi. Good for you. Another will like, you know, Sheikh Ghimari from Morocco. Another will like the Ba'alawis in Yemen. Another will like the Tijanis. Another will like this. You know what? Whichever movement you find a, a, a level of 
activism, a level of comfort, and you are coming close to Allah and His Messenger. And there is scholarship. We're going to come to this point. There is legit scholarship in all of them. Then you know, live and let live. You find your way, and don't make others who find other ways the enemy. Why? Because, listen to this, for every one of you that has found one way, there are five that are completely lost. Ten that are completely outside the fold of practicing Islam. Is this not correct? Wallahi, is it not correct? For every one of you that has found one of these paths, there are at least five to ten that are not praying committing major sins, have no interest to be close to Allah and His Messenger, why are we bickering amongst ourselves when all of us should be focused on outside? There's plenty, no need for competition. The problem is, we consider the masjid pool the competition. This is our problem, wallahi, this is our problem. And so, the Salafi looks and says, oh, these are not all Salafi, I need to make them Salafi. The Jamaat Islami go, I need to make them all Jamaat Islami. The Tabligh goes, oh, Khuruj, Chawla, let's go, Jawla, Chalis, let's go, right? Everyone, Kullu Hizmi Baladain Farihun. Guys, there's plenty of fish outside the masjid. Plenty. Correct? Much more. So, the fact that we're all coming here, don't worry about it. These people are all praying. Go find somebody outside. And then bring him to your maslak and I'll say, Zakallah khair, no problem for me. Simple as that. The world has so much to offer you. And even more, non-Muslims out there. We can all agree that to bring somebody into Islam, what a big blessing, right? So instead of prioritizing practicing Muslims who disagree with you, look at the broader picture and realize that differences of methodology are complementary. My fourth point, and I gave a khatir about this last year, you should listen to it. My fourth point, I'm going to teach you some basic psychology here. You guys weren't expecting this. I'm going to teach you some basic human psychology. This is a well-observed phenomenon. And it is studied in sociology. It is studied in anthropology. It is studied in psychology. It is called, the technical term, the banality of trivial differences. The banality of trivial differences, a technical term. Even Freud mentions it in his books and other people mention it. Um, the anthropologists of religion as well um, first also mentioned this. And this is a principle, by the way, it applies in every field of human existence, not just religion, in every field. Listen to this principle. It's a principle of lived, experienced life of anthropology, history, culture, religion, anything. Listen to this. Anytime two things or two groups of people or two societies are closer and closer together, automatically the differences between them become more pronounced. Inverse proportionality. The closer two groups are, the bigger the trivial differences become. And the farther apart the two groups are, the more trivial even the bigger differences become. I'll give you a simple example. And again, I'm not missing my words here. The goal is not controversy. The goal is to make you understand. We are sitting it in which masjid is this, guys? Which masjid? Isna, which is the largest masjid in in all of Mississauga? No? Uh-oh, we got it. Uh-oh, I'm getting in trouble for this. One of the largest masjid. Okay. Does Isna have interfaith programs where we they invite Christians and they do that, right? Every masjid does, right? Yeah. Nobody bats an eyelid. We can invite. I have. We have. Epic has our masjid. We invite priests. In Ramadan, before the conflict, we invited rabbis as well. Now, of course, we're not going to do it, but before that, we invited priests and rabbis. 
Okay? Not because we have a problem with inviting them, but because of Zionism. Our problem is not with Jewish people. Our problem is with Zionism, right? Remember this, right? So the we would invite them. Now, and nobody bats an eyelid. We can invite somebody who believes Jesus is the son of God. We break bread with them. We share, you know, speeches and lectures. We go to their churches. They come to our masjids. When was the last time Sunnis and Shias had an iftar together in Ramadan? Yeah, I went there. I'm sorry. I'm going to go there. When was the last time? Never. Doesn't happen. Do you want to know why? Banality of trivial differences. Psychologically, we find it more difficult to come to terms with somebody who's closer to us and those differences become more pronounced because they are closer to us. Why? Because psychologically, the threat becomes the one that's closest to you is actually your competition. Hmm? Let me give you an example in the business world. Who is Coke's main competitor? Pepsi. It's not sparkling water. Even though in actual sales, sparkling water is a bigger fitna for Coke than, Coke, than Pepsi is. But Coke doesn't care about Pellegrino sparkling water. Coke only cares about Pepsi. Because they view, and psychologically even, even though, despite all of your claims to the contrary, I guarantee you 9 out of 10 people, if I put the two in front of you, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. I know you think you know, but you don't know, okay? 9 out of 10, you couldn't tell the difference between the two of them. But the competition between them is so severe. Why? Banality of trivial differences. The perception is, because legitimately, this is my main competitor. Similarly, we need to understand and apply this to our lives. Salafis and Sufis, wallahi, I swear to you, the average non-practicing Muslim will be in shock. Like, you guys are actually fighting over these things? As for the non-Muslim, he wouldn't even understand. He would just go over his head like, you guys are two groups because of what exactly again? Wouldn't even understand. But the amount of animosity that has been generated over the last 30 years between Salafi and not just that, before this, Subhanallah, from the perspective of the outsider, these two movements and more are exactly the same. Let me put it to you this way. If, what is your national newspaper here? The, what, the, the Toronto Mail, what is it? Toronto Star. If a reporter from the Toronto Star lived in the house of a Salafi for two days and then the house of a Sufi for two days, do you think in the interactions in the way the children, in the way dating is not allowed, in the way the television, in the way the salah. Do you think that reporter could tell any difference? No. Then why are we creating differences? An outsider could not even tell the difference from his worldview. It is exactly the same. The morality we're teaching, the food we're eating, the akhlaq of the children, the, the ambience of the household. 100% the same. But within our ranks, we have all these divisions. Oh, this is this, this is that, this is this, this is that. Banality of trivial differences. We need to understand the psychological problem. The closer two groups are, the more exaggerated the perceived threat becomes. And so we instinctively kick in and make a very similar group much more problematic than it needs to be. We need to overcome this. So this is my fourth point. Understand the ban 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 banality of trivial differences. The fifth point here. 
The fifth point is a bit technical. I'm teaching you a little bit of philosophy, a little bit of syllogisms here. And again, I hope inshallah there's a, some benefit. Okay? The syllogism is, syllogisms means philosophical premises. If X, then Y. If Y, then Z. Z is wrong, so X is wrong. It's like basic syllogism, right? If X, then Y. If you say this, this implies something else. This something else is wrong. Therefore, X is wrong. Let me give you an example. And I'm giving you a, a, a trivial example that, that does exist in the Indian subcontinent, Pakistani subcontinent, but it's not common in, I hope it's not common in Canada and America, but it's well known, the difference between the Deobandis and the Ahli Hadith. Okay? All the Pakistani Indians are aware of this, you know, the difference between Deobandi and Ahli Hadith. One of the biggest differences is where to place the hands. And I'm not even exaggerating. This is a matter of life and death to this group, like literally. Okay? It's a matter of sunnah and bid'ah, kufr and whatnot. Right? Now, I'm giving you a legit example. This is the real example from that bubble. Each group says, the Ahli Hadith, for example, they say, it is established that the Prophet put his hand on his chest. It is established that he did so. This is X for them, right? If you reject X, if you reject the placing of the hands on the, on the chest, this implies you are rejecting the command of the Prophet which is Y. If X, then Y. Rejecting the command of the Prophet is kufr. Hence, placing your hands on your stomach is kufr. This is a legit example that is well known in that part of the world. I've heard it multiple times with my own ears from their scholars. And it goes both ways. The Dubandis have their own versions as well. If X, then Y. Y is kufr, therefore X is kufr. Now, do you understand the syllogism example? Okay, I'm going to teach you some basic philosophy, some basic syllogisms. If X, then Y, 99% of the time, exists only in your head, not the head of the person that you're ascribing it to. You are the one making this linkage, not the person. If you want to be technical, there's an Arabic maxim here. لَازِمُ الْمَذْهَبِ لَيْسَ بِالْمَذْهَبِ the corollary of an opinion is not the opinion. The implication of an opinion is not the actual opinion. What you've derived from the opinion is not the opinion. That's your derivation. And the person who holds it doesn't agree with your derivation. Hence, when you make a verdict on your derivation, that is not a verdict on the opinion. That is a verdict on your own derivation of the opinion. In other words, the Deobandi will say to you, I don't agree that the Prophet prayed with his hands over here. And I have this evidence, this evidence, this evidence, evidence that he prayed over there. So from my perspective, I'm not rejecting the Prophet at all. You're the one assuming this of me. And I give you a simple example. We can apply the exact same example to almost every single strand of Islam. Between Salafi Sufis, between even Sunni Shia, between the Barelvi and, and the Ash'ari, every group. The, the lazim of the qawl. And again, if you want to get technical, like, there are so many examples, I don't want to confuse you all, but one of the controversies, which again, I mean, Allah understand, it is what it is. One of the controversies is, what does it mean Allah has risen over the throne? Istawa al-arsh. And this has been a huge controversy for a thousand years. What does it mean? Ar-Rahmanu al-arsh istawa. And we've had six opinions in early Islam. Three of them became codified, and, but, and then basically you now have, even within 
Sunnism, you have two or three strands. So one group says, when Allah says he has risen over the throne, he has risen over the throne. So there is a throne and Allah has risen over it. The other group says, no, this is metaphorical language. That means Allah has conquered and Allah has majesty. There's no actual throne. Now, I'm not going to get into which one is right or wrong and whatnot. I'm saying each of these groups then reads in heresies in the other group's opinion. So those that say Allah has literally risen over the throne, they accuse the other group. Okay, if you deny this, you are denying the Quran and denying the Quran is kufr. Simple. If you deny this, then you're denying the Quran. And the response is, no, they're not denying it. They are interpreting a verse, just like the Sahaba when they were told, pray Zuhr or Asr at Banu Qurayza. The words are the same. They didn't deny the hadith. They interpret it in a different manner. This is not a denial. In your mind, it's a denial, not in the mind of the other group. And the same goes the other group. The other group says, if you say Allah has risen over the throne, then you mean astaghfirullah that Allah has a body and Allah comes up and down and that Allah sits and Allah... That... And the group that says risen, they don't say any of this. But each group ascribes to the other what the other group does not actually believe. I'm telling you this. I hope you guys are following me. Next time you hear a sheikh criticize another movement and say, they say this, this means that, cut off, this means that. Cut it off. Because the derivation is something the person has derived and not that the other group holds. You understand this point here? Once you understand this technical point, much of the animosity, and I can be even more blunt, I just don't want to cause any issues or troubles, even between Sunni and Shia, we can give examples that really, our perceptions, even though I am Sunni, no doubt about it, I respect the Sahaba, but I don't make takfir of the Shia, I'll be blunt here, I don't care what you guys say, I'm, this is, I've studied Aqidah, I can defend my views, I don't make takfir, they're not kafir, they are not kafir, I know what I'm saying and I can debate any of you. Come and talk to me, no problem. Certain aspects that certain people might believe might be covered. But as a whole movement, no, we don't make takfir of the 12 or Shia. We don't. This is not mainstream Sunnism even. Mainstream Sunnism does not make takfir of them. Now, somebody says, oh, listen to this. And this is a controversial example. They disrespect the Sahaba. And by disrespecting the Sahaba, they are disrespecting Allah and His Messenger. This is exactly if X then Y, Y is kufr, then X is kufr. Okay? I am not at all sympathetic to Shi'i Islam, but I'm bringing this example so that I'm trying to deconstruct the syllogism here. From their worldview, from their worldview, they are defending the teachings and the command of the Prophet. They think that Ali should have been the Khalifa. And so in their worldview, they are reclaiming the prophetic command. Now, I don't agree with their worldview. But you cannot say that in their worldview, they are rejecting Allah and His Messenger. In their worldview, they are trying to defend what they think the Prophet said. So even if they're wrong, don't say unto them that they are rejecting Allah and His Messenger. You may say factually that they don't respect certain Sahaba and men. That's factually correct. But why? And again, you get to the point of if X, then Y, you need to deconstruct it. So understand this point here that. Uh, the implications of an opinion are not the opinion. And they only exist in the mind of the critic, not in the mind of the one who holds the opinion. Did you guys understand that point? It's a bit of a technical point. Move on to the sixth point. Six and seven, then shall we open some Q&A. The sixth point, very important, very basic premise of theology. On the day of judgment, 
ignorance is an excuse within mainstream Islam. If somebody genuinely did not know, Allah will forgive them. On the day of judgment, what is important? Your niyyah of wanting to worship Allah and believing in the messenger. That much ex- ignorance is not excused. If you rejected Allah, there is no excuse. You knowing who Allah was. If you rejected the Prophet that's not excuse there. But if you thought you're following the Prophet incorrectly, it is very possible you will be excused. Even if you make a blunder of the biggest proportion. Simple example, hadith is in Bukhari, that uh, the, the Prophet said that on the day of judgment, a man will be brought. And this man, when he was about to die, uh, you know the famous hadith, when he was about to die, he told his children that burn my body and disperse my ashes. I don't want Allah to resurrect me. I don't want Allah to bring me back together. Because I'm a sinner, and if Allah resurrects me, He's going to punish me, so I want to get out of the day of judgment. I want to trick, get out, so that I don't have to have the day of judgment. Right? So his sons burnt the body, distributed the ashes in the wind. Allah said, Kun fayakun, the body comes up. Allah says, what did you do? Why would you do this? And the man said, Ya Rab, I was scared of you. So Allah says, because of your fear for me, I have forgiven you. You were genuinely good intention, but you were jahil. I mean, I'm saying he's a jahil, right? Come, He thought he could out-trick Allah, correct? He thought he could outwit Allah. But did he do so out of arrogance or out of fear? Fear of Allah. Allah looked at the niyyah above the form. Allah looked at the spirit above the letter of the law. This hadith isn't well known in our tradition. And this leads us to the principle that all theologians acknowledge that al-udhru bil-jahli, excuse because of ignorance. Fact of the matter, I don't want to get too controversial, but I'm pretty fairly certain the bulk of you in this audience, the version of Islam you follow, you were born into it, or max, you were exposed to it as a young man or woman, and it was your first version of real Islamic spirituality and activism. I am positive 99% in this audience are following the version of Islam that you were born into, or you were just born a generic Muslim, and when you come to college, you meet a group of Muslims, whether they're Tablighi, whether they're Jamaati, whether they're Hizb, whether they're Salafi, whether they're this and that, and they're your first exposure to Islam. And you discover the joy of Islam through them. And you become immersed in their world. Next thing you know, 20 years go by and here you are sitting here today. And your own cousin, your own brother was exposed to another version of Islam. And so they're in another strand of Islam. And a third cousin of ours, all of us, not even practicing Islam. That's the way the world is. So you yourselves have chosen a version of Islam by and large based upon circumstances beyond our control. What were to be happening? What were to happen if one of you were to be born in a Shi'i family? What are the chances that you would be sitting here versus another masjid? What are the chances if one of you were born in a hardcore Barelvi family? Let's say, Qatar Barelvi, mashallah. What are the chances you'd be sitting here right now? I'm sure some of you are from that family. I'm just saying, though, there are other masajid that are on that strand. So, even if I disagree with Shi'ism, and I do, and even if I politely disagree with Berelvism and I do I also realize that majority of people sitting in their masajid are sitting there because of what that's the version they were exposed to 
They don't know any better. And they genuinely believe they're following the Quran. And they're following the teachings of the Prophet And that niyyah is what is going to save them. Do you guys understand this key point here? The niyyah, sincerity to Allah, is what will save them. Even if they follow a version, here I'm telling you on this mimbar, pulpit, whatever it is, I'm saying publicly, anybody who disrespects the Sahaba, I cannot respect that person. And yet, I make an excuse for the average person amongst them. He doesn't know any better. It's not their fault. They're born into that version of Islam. And they have been spoon-fed a very different version of early history. Do you understand this point here? I'm not excusing their belief, but I'm excusing the circumstances of their belief. That's what I'm explaining to you. So stop hating on a person because of a different strand of Islam. Because frankly, your strand of Islam with utmost respect, is not because of an academic study of all of the strands of Islam. I'm not trying to be harsh, but it's the truth. Your own version of Islam is either you were born into it and you're inheriting your father and mother's version, or like I said, the first activist that you liked, the first group that you just appealed to, and you're still on that strand. And you are convinced that it is the only correct version. But guess what? Your cousin on the other strand is just as convinced that his version is the only correct version. And had you gone down your cousin's path, you would view the same as your cousin. So stop presuming that, mashallah, you happen to be born in the correct firqa. No. Alhamdulillah, we're believers and let it be. So this is my sixth point. Uh, ignorance is an excuse. And the seventh point, if you don't understand or agree with any of these six then inshallah, the seventh is all that you need. Look at the world around you and ask yourself, is this the time and the place I need to be bickering about issues that are of no tangible concern? Is this the time and place I need to divide the ummah up? When your house is on fire and you're going to be arguing over the color of the furniture, wallahi, this is the equivalent. When your children are in danger, and you're arguing about the groceries for tomorrow. Literally, this is the reality. It's not just Gaza and the bombs over there. It is the modern world we live in and the values facing us. Guys, brutal, raw honesty. Sunni, Salafi, Deobandi, Barelvi, Hizb, Ikhwan, whatever you want to call. We are all one when it comes to alcohol is haram, zina is haram, LGBT is unethical. We are all one when it comes to akhlaq and morality. We are all one when it comes to praying five times a day and worshipping Allah and reading Quran and fasting Ramadan. And in this society where Hardly any of our country members are believing in Allah and His Messenger, praying five times a day. Now, those that have chosen to be in this masjid, amongst us, we start fighting over aspects that, even if they're important at some places and times, right here and now, it becomes trivial. So my seventh point, context. Look at the world around you. The world right now doesn't need these classical controversies. If you are very interested, Hire a hall, bring your 5, 10, 20 people that are interested, lock the door, and shout as much as you want. Then when you're done, shake hands and pray together in the masjid. Wallahi, I'm dead serious. If you're really, you have to let out that, you know, steam, that pressure cooker. You want to argue. What does istawa al-arsh mean? You want to argue. Hanafi, this, Jafi'i, that. 
Fine. Bring the 20 people that are super interested in this topic and in a private room, debate, 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 debate. And then at the end, hug each other and pray in a unified saf facing the same qibla with the same sajda, the same God that we worship, reading the same fatiha, following the same arkan of salah. Who cares if your hand is here and here? You are praying to Allah, is it not? So look at the context around us all and understand even if some of our teachers, may Allah bless and reward them, I'm not criticizing that, they think certain issues are important back home, they don't live here. And look around you and see those issues are not anywhere near as important as the issues we can all agree upon as Muslims. Before I open up the floor for Q&A, I have some uh, examples and uh, uh, one concluding remark. As for the example, in my opinion, one of the most important examples in our history is the example of Adil radiallahu an and the first group that broke away, and that is the Khawarij. I don't want to go into the details of where and why and whatnot. Let's just say, during the time of Ali radiallahu an, a splinter group formed with a different fiqh and a different aqidah and a different methodology. Everything was different. They had a different belief in Allah, a different you know, understanding of what it means to be a Muslim and a mu'min. Of course, they believe in Allah, they pray, but their understanding, the definitions of iman and kufr, the definitions of whatnot, very different than mainstream Islam. Ali radiallahu an attempted to debate with them. He sent Ibn Abbas to them. He went back and forth. Some of them came back and some of them remained. Over 2,000 of them remained. And they said they don't even want to live amongst the Muslim women in Kufa. They want to live in a city outside of Kufa because they felt that the rest of the Muslims were all misguided. Ali radiallahu an being the Khalifa. And this is important because Ali radiallahu an is respected by Sunnis and Shia. What was his policy? As the Khalifa, he could have said, I'm going to force you to follow my version of Islam. As the Khalifa, he could have said, there's not going to be freedom of religious thought within the Ummah. And this is not under a democracy. This is not under Canada's constitution. This is under Khulafa al-Rashidun. What did he do? Under Khulafa al-Rashidun rule, he said to them, Laysa lana alaykum min sabil. I have no right to force you to follow. I have no right to force you to follow my interpretation. So as long as you don't physically harm other people, you are free to do as you please. It was only when the Khawarij began highway robbery and began threatening and killing, then Ali fought them because of physical. And this is my madhab and methodology. We live and let live for any strand of Islam except when they become violent then we need to get involved as a community. We live and let live. Doesn't mean we respect. I do not respect those who disrespect Abu Bakr and Umar radiallahu. I don't. But what am I gonna, what is my hatred gonna accomplish? What is my fomenting anger gonna accomplish? They're around for 1,200 years. Do you think my giving you a khutbah against them is gonna change them? And let's be honest, there's no mass conversions taking place. There's no people going here and there. And honestly, even if one person were to convert and go over there, it's better than becoming a kafir about a million times. So, Ali radiallahu an gives us the template. There is a level of freedom of diversity of thought, even if I don't agree with it. And this leads me to my uh, second to two, two, two final points. 
I gave a khutbah or a khatira last week in my masjid. You can listen to it online about UNRWA, U-N-R-W-A. And I mentioned a very, very controversial aspect, but I'm going to say it again. It's high time we, the Muslims of North America, Canada, America, England, Australia, the English-speaking countries, it's high time we understand our problems are unique to the world. And in order to solve those problems, sometimes respected scholars 5,000 miles away are not the best source of answers for our modern problems. I speak as somebody who respects those scholars because I've studied with them. They've written taskiyas for me. I'll be the first to say their akhlaq, their ibadat, their knowledge of the tradition cannot be compared to anybody over here. But when it comes to living amongst non-Muslims in a secular democracy, when it comes to engagement, when it comes to da'wah, when it comes to activism, our local scholars who have lived amongst us, even if they can't quote you the classic tradition as much as your sheikh 3,000 miles away, your local scholars here are your primary source of reference and leadership. I don't mean myself. Not at all. Wallahi, no. You have amongst you senior ulama. And I need to speak to the youth here. An alim isn't just somebody who can quote you the texts. An alim isn't just somebody who's memorized the classical books. An alim also has tarbiyah here. An alim also has a level of interaction, of knowledge, of wisdom. I'm going to mention names here. Dr. Jamal Badawi is the icon of Western Islam. I swear to you, I would go to him in a heartbeat over any alama or Sheikh al-Islam in any other part of the world for issues pertaining to North America. And I have studied with those great ulama and I would not ask my esteemed Dr. Jamal Badawi a very technical question of fiqh, usul al-fiqh, musal al-hadith. I would not ask him this. And I would go to those ulama that I've studied with for those aspects. But when it comes to living in Canada and activism in Canada and engagement with the broader community, I need to give speciality to those that have lived it. Do you understand my point here? You have in this masjid one of the legends of Islam in North America, Sheikh Abdullah Idris. How can you Wallahi, shame on you to bypass him and to think your sheikh back in another country 3,000 miles away is better suited to tell you how to live your life in this country. I'm not talking about theoretical aspects, in which case go to the any. I'm talking about practical aspects of living your life, of engagement, of activism. You cannot take fatwas from people about issues they haven't actually experienced. And living as a Canadian citizen in a democracy, in a liberal society, brings a new set of challenges that only those that have lived it are qualified. And so, yes, wallahi, I say to you as somebody who has studied with major shuyukh, the big names I have studied with them, I'm not saying this boastfully, I'm saying this so that you understand. I know Dr. Jamal, Sheikh Abdullah, Sheikh Muzammar Siddiqui, others, don't equate with Sheikh Bin Bash, Sheikh Uthameen. I study with them. Sheikh Uthameen wrote me a tazkiyah. I'm not saying they equate in fiqh or in aqidah abstract. But wallahi, I say to you, when it comes to activism and engagement and living in the West, how can you go to a scholar who has never interacted with non-Muslims, never lived in a democracy, 
Some of them with utmost love and respect still think voting is kufr. Some of them still think protests are haram. With utmost love and respect. This is not a fatwa that comes from a book. This is a fatwa that deals with reality. So leadership has to be from within, guys. Even if your local leaders can't quote you the classical books as much as other people can, still they are your leaders. Do you understand this point here? Still, they are your actual bona fide leaders. Can you have you ever heard of a company where the CEO of the company is not involved with the company? Have you ever heard of a company where the CEO is some faraway land or island and he does the day-to-day activities of the company? It doesn't work that way. Only somebody who is in the thick and thin of it understands the nuances, sees what is going on. That person is a leader. Even if the CEO doesn't know as much as the PhD professor of Harvard or Yale in business studies, the CEO knows his business better than any other professor does. The same reality applies to living Islam as a minority situation. And my final point here then, and this is my conclusion, when it comes to firaq and Manahij and yani, all of these strands and whatnot, what I propose is the following. I propose something called circles of cooperation. It's very simple. There, we need to get to this point of having circles of cooperation, concentric circles, a narrow circle, a larger circle, a larger, a larger. And the more religious something is purely religious, the narrower the circle, the more non-religious or secular or political becomes, the bigger the circle. So for example, when it comes to who's going to lead the salah in the masjid, we make a narrow circle, the smallest circle. Who's going to teach Islamic studies to the kids in our Islamic school? We don't want somebody from another firqa. We don't. Who's going to teach Islamic studies? We narrow the circle. Somebody who has similar understandings, generic Sunni Islam needs to be there. right? Cannot be too narrow, by the way. That's another point. Has to be reasonable narrow. And for me, Generic Sunni Islam. We respect the Quran, we respect the Sahaba, we follow the Quran and Sunnah. This is mainstream Islam, right? This is my version of the narrowest. Who gives the khutbah? Somebody who is within this mainstream. And I mentioned some of these groups that are mainstream. All of these are mainstream, okay? That's the narrowest circle. Now, a bit larger than this, and that is, for example, to build an Islamic school. We don't have to have only people of our understanding of Islam. We might have people that are, I mean, in the end of the day, the Islamic school is going to give an ambiance of no drugs, you know, no living that. So if they're Sunni, Shia, you know, others that come together to build an Islamic school, okay, what's the problem in that? Bismillah, go for it. Now, even broader than that is what? Political activism. Political activism, we really don't care what your aqidah is. There's an Islamophobic government coming. There's a government that is sanctioning the bombing of Gaza. I'm sorry, I don't care what your aqidah is. Even a kafir becomes an ally. And when I ally with a kafir for Gaza, it's not an endorsement of his kufr. It's only the teenagers who make a fuss and release YouTube videos that actually understand this. Guilt by association is not an Islamic concept. This is a figment in the minds of the fanatical youth. It is not a Quranic concept. If I stand next to somebody, it doesn't mean I endorse everything that this person has ever said. If I cooperate, and by the way, nobody lives there. You all come together for your corporations. Don't you work with people of all different backgrounds in your corporations? Your your office mate, the guy next to you. Does it mean that because you're next to him, 
that you endorse everything about him. If you understand you're going to come together for your dollars and you're going to work with somebody from the another community of, yani, how to put it nicely, moralities and sexualities and whatnot, right? You're going to come together and work with them. And you're going to understand that this is jaiz in Islam. You don't control the sexuality of your you know, uh, team and whatnot, right? You can come together for the dunya and nobody's going to say guilt by association. And yet the minute activists and scholars come together for Gaza and they bring Jews and Christians that are anti-Zionist and they bring all of a sudden, oh, look at this guy watering the deen down, this and that. No, yaqhi, wallahi, it's only your mind that is watered down. There is no watering of the deen going on here. We're trying to save lives. We're trying to bring about activism. And only you, and this is if X then Y goes back to this issue. Only you make the assumption that if you do this or that, it implies this or that. No, nobody else says this. So understand that we are living at a time and a place where out of the 1.8 billion Muslims in the world, less than 10 million, that's me and you, are able to impact the policies of the superpowers of this world. Is that not correct? Less than 10 million are able to impact the policies. And I'm going to say this bluntly, and with this I conclude. Wallahi, O people of Toronto, I find it embarrassing and sad that according to latest statistics, Toronto roughly is more than 10% Muslim. And Mississauga in particular is closer to 15% Muslim. I find it embarrassing that this 15%, and I speak, inshallah, as one of you in the sense, I'm not a Canadian, but as a Western Muslim. When I say embarrassing for myself as well, I'm not blaming you, that this 15% has not made a fraction of their impact on the government level. Wallahi, I find this atrocious. And I'm not rebuking you as an outsider. We're all guilty. I'm getting harsh at myself and all of you. How can we not come together as Muslims? How can we not unite and understand we have a role to play here? Literally, the genocide of the century is taking place as we speak. Literally, no genocide in human history has been broadcast with such vivid color, detail, imagery, live. There are people that have the phone on when the bomb is falling and they're saying, La ilaha illallah. And the video goes out. Never in human history has this cruelty been broadcast across the globe. If now is not the time we understand, we need leadership that is based in this country. I don't care what a scholar 5,000 miles away says about firqas and manhaj and kufr and bid'ah and shirk. We need to come together as Muslims in this land. One ummah, one God, one Quran. And we need to fight according to our constitution, our political engagement, and cause an impact that is going to save lives here. If we're not going to understand this at this stage, then I'm sorry, one of two scenarios comes to mind. If somebody still wants to divide the ummah, if somebody still is obsessed about where I place my hands or what version of aqidah I follow, one of two things. Either number one, you have been planted by an outsider to cause fitna within, and we know there are people like this. Wallahi, there are people like this. You are being paid by sources from without to cause controversy from within. Or number two, genuinely your IQ is not in the two digits. 
genuinely, your understanding of Islam is so backward that perhaps the pen has been lifted on the Day of Judgment. Ignorance will be an excuse because you really are ignorant right now. Wallahi, I'm sorry, but at this stage, I cannot think of a third excuse for you. I'm sorry. Either you are planted and you're getting paid, and there are people like this. I don't want to be more explicit, but because I am who I am, I know for a fact some of the biggest names online that are our critics, they are paid by other people. I don't want to say any more than this. We know for a fact. Some of these YouTube videos you guys are influenced by, we know for a fact they're paid by other people. But I don't want to say more than this because Allah time. Or number two. Number two, you genuinely, your understanding of Islam is so shallow and so narrow that honestly it's not even in two-digit IQ. And you literally think that it is more important that I worry about abstract issues of aqidah than to save lives of people being bombed overseas. In which case, we just make dua for you and continue to pray for you that Allah opens your minds to a bigger understanding. And until then, Allah Allah protect us from your stupidity and foolishness, even if your heart isn't evil, but you dividing the ummah and you releasing refutations and videos and causing controversies now, wallahi, the house is burning. And you're arguing with people about the color of the furniture. This is what it is. In any case, with this, inshallah ta'ala, uh, we will open the floor for Q&A and um, bismillah. So should we, should we do these ones first? Okay, bismillah. Assalamualaikum, everyone. Just before we get started with the Q&A, um, there are three cars that need to be moved immediately. You can't have a Muslim gathering without the three cars announcements. You are correct. This correct. is the sunnah of Western Islam as well. Mashallah. So... License plate CXAD823. That's a Honda CRV. I have a Toyota Highlander DAXC648 and a Kia, a GVKE573. Jazakallah. Okay, Bismillah. So, guys, question to you all. It is now 927. How much do you want me to go till? It's up to you guys. Until what time should I continue? <laughs> Is 10 o'clock good? 10 o'clock good? Can I hear a yes? 10 o'clock. Okay, so inshallah, sharp stop at 10 o'clock inshallah, okay? Jayid. So the first question I have, in light of your lecture, can you give an example? How would you deal with the molid issue? Is the molid bid'ah or not? Okay, Jayid. So this is a, a good example. Guys, I need you to um, lower the volume because I can't scream above, mashallah, 3,000 people. So if we can keep the volume down. So the issue, again, one thing you need to understand, brothers and sisters, is that before you pronounce a verdict on something, pretend you are on the other strand or the other side and see what they're saying. The issue of the maulid, whatever position you want to follow, understand there are great ulama on both sides of the equation. And it all goes back to definitions. It all goes back to how do you define a bid'ah? Can you believe both groups say bid'ah is wrong? Can you believe that? Both groups say bid'ah is wrong. Both groups say following the sunnah is obligatory. Both groups say we want to show love to the Prophet So rather than jump to the difference, let's begin with the commonalities. The commonalities the one group says, by not celebrating the bid'ah, we are showing love. The, 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 the mawlid, which is a bid'ah, we're showing love. The other group says, the mawlid is a legit demonstration of love, so we're going to show love via the mawlid. What combines the both of them, love for the Prophet 
What combines both of them, they believe their interpretations are showing love to the Prophet ﷺ. So allow them this issue in common. You choose the academic side that you like and you follow it. And then allow room for the other. Because, listen to me carefully, in Muslim lands, we do not enforce this strictness in our own masajid. Look at any Muslim land. You have those who celebrate, those who don't celebrate. Then why do you think it is obligatory, you on Darul Kufr, in Mississauga, in Isna, you must enforce one version against the other? Follow the sunnah of Ali radiallahu an. Live and let live. You present your opinion politely, respectfully, and then the other group want to listen. In the end of the day, both of you are still on the same side. Live and let live. I have my opinions. And if you know my biography and whatnot and see what I do on, you know what my opinion is. But don't hate somebody who is doing something out of love for the Messenger. So the next question then, my second question. So, Shaykh, in all of this, aren't we watering Islam down and making Islam too easy? So, this is a very important question. Aren't we watering Islam down? Aren't we making Islam too easy? And the response is, I'm not the one who made Islam easy. Allah did. Allah says in the Quran, يُرِيدُ اللَّهُ بِكُمُ الْيُسْرَ وَلَا يُرِيدُ بِكُمُ الْعُسْرَ Allah wants to make things easy for you. Yusr, my name Yasir, Yusr from this. My name is easy too, Yasir. Allah wants to make things easy. Allah says in the Quran, وَمَا جَعَلَ عَلَيْكُمْ فِي الدِّينِ مِنْ حَرَجٍ Allah did not make the deen have haraj on you. The Prophet said, يَسِّرُوا وَلَا تُعَسِّرُوا بَشِّرُوا وَلَا تُنَفِّرُوا Make things easy, don't make things difficult. The Prophet said, None of you makes this religion more difficult except that you will end up destroying yourself. So we actually have a problem in our psyche. And that problem is, we think the strict opinion is more pleasing to Allah. And that is not a rule that any scholar ever said in the history of Islam. Strictness and non-strictness has nothing to do with the correct opinion. Sometimes the correct opinion is strict. Waking up in your country during winter for Fajr and doing wudu, yeah, that's strict, man. I can't give you any concession. No matter how cold it is outside, you cannot do tayammum, okay? In your houses, it's a strict opinion. Do wudu. That's why I don't live here. Number one reason I don't live in Canada, not because of the smiles of the people in Mississauga, it is the weather. Leave me out of it. So I'm not going to give you a concession. It is what it is. At the same time, if somebody were to never have heard of the concession of combining when you travel, and then they hear it, they're going to say, Astaghfirullah, you guys are destroying the religion. You're making the religion easy. You're combining Dhuhr and Asr when you travel. Yaqi, who said strictness is necessarily better? Who said that making things easy is always worse? Nothing is judged by strictness or ease. And in fact, if two things are both permissible, then the Prophet himself would choose the easier of the two. The Prophet himself would choose the easier of the two. So this notion of making Islam easy, this notion of making Islam watered down, 
I'm sorry, we need to be more academic. Just because. So let me give you another example, okay? And this actually leads to a number of, a number of other questions we have over here as well. Uh, about, uh, I mean, not about aqidah, but it's about like gender issues and women and women's roles and whatnot. So we'll move into this automatically, segue. There's a lot of questions about uh, females sitting next to each other with males in the bar. all of the standard stuff that happens. It's fine, I get it. It, it needs to be asked. Um, can there be a female scholar presenter at the front of the musalla? <laughs> this is about our presenter here. <laughs> I understand. Okay, Khair, you want me to answer it? I'll answer. It's right here. I'm not making it up. Okay. Um, so, all valid points. Okay, listen to me, sisters and brothers. Just because our culture, our ancestors did something in a certain way, doesn't mean it is right or wrong. It could be right, it could be wrong, it could be culturally relatively good for them and not good for us. Just because certain things are cultural doesn't mean they're, they're Islamic. We need a more detailed discussion. And so when it comes to gender and gender norms, when it comes to gender interaction, listen to me carefully. The Sharia has come with a cultural spectrum of leeway. And there are certain red lines that are haram. So what is a red line that is haram? The Prophet ﷺ said, never should a man and woman be alone in a room without any other person present. In a place that they cannot, you know, any non-mahram people should not be. This is a red line. No culture can change that. Okay? Now, when it comes to interacting when it comes to speaking, when it comes to public spaces, did the Sharia send down logistical maps about how the sukh should be structured? Did the Sharia come down with masajid and how they should have their structures here? No. No. And so, if in India and Pakistan and Bangladesh and Egypt and whatnot, this audience would not happen in a masjid, I'm not criticizing them. I'm not saying they're backward. I'm not saying they're up forward. That's their culture. If a mother feels it is more important to prioritize her career than her children, then I will say that she has lost the Islamic plot. I'm being blunt here. If a mother feels that her career is more important than her children's, that'd be, I didn't say she can't work. Don't misquote me. I said prioritizing. Please don't misquote me, sisters. I know what I'm saying. The priority is children. If you can manage both, that's something else. But the priority is children. So there are certain things where we're crossing the red lines. There are other times where culture would allow it. If Umar ibn Khattab can tell the Prophet that, hey, men and women can fight in a different way in Mecca versus Medina. Did he not say this? Right? This is not Sahih Bukhari. Well, then guess what? Men and women are going to have very different gender roles in Canada than in Mecca and Medina. And just because my grandmother, grandfather had a different system than I do. Doesn't mean they were backward and I'm forward. Doesn't mean they were correct and I'm wrong. It's all permissible as long as the Sharia is not contravened. So I hope that answers that question that as long as men and women interact in a dignified manner, as long as there's no explicit suggestiveness or flirtation, as long as both are dressed appropriately, there is a leeway. Now, am I saying this should happen or not? No. It depends on specific circumstances. And 
I will say one thing, brothers. Listen, I'm visiting your community. I don't know the internal issues, so don't read in. I'm just going to say one thing to you. If you will deny our sisters their legitimate rights, don't be surprised when they demand illegitimate rights as well. If you will make the halal haram, don't be surprised that they're going to demand haram as well then. What do I mean by this? And again, I don't know the politics of your community. So board members, please, I'm not talking about any of you sitting behind the wall there. I don't know anything about your board politics. If you don't allow sisters to have a healthy, normal role in the masjid, don't be surprised that they're going to start demanding un-Islamic things as what happened in America. In Los Angeles, the women said we're going to build our own masjid, women-only masjid, women imams, women khatibs. I don't believe this is allowed. Women don't give khutbas. This is not something we agree to. Women do not give khutbas. They do not lead mixed congregation salah. So we have to go with the flow as much as the sharia allows. Being honest with you, if we be too hardline, it's going to result in a backlash. And it's going to result in our own daughters not understanding because we didn't understand what the sharia allowed. If we become too strict, there's going to be a counter-reaction of being too liberal. Correct? And if we are also too lax, that will also result in a backlash. So talk to your scholars, talk to your board, talk to your community, and have these difficult conversations. What is good and what is not good? Each community should decide. And as long as the sharia's overall overarching philosophy is met, inshallah ta'ala, that is uh, permissible. Okay, next question we have here is that uh, we are the next government here in this country will be a non-friendly government. Many Muslims believe we should not engage with uh, that party uh, or politics. Uh, what should we do? So listen, everybody has a role to play. My role as the cleric, as the uh, minor scholar, whatever in this regard, it is not to analyze which party you should vote for. That's not my role. And you should not go to shuyukh to do political analysis, generally speaking. My role is to be generic. And to generically tell you, oh Muslims of Canada, you must be involved in the Canadian system. That is my role. Oh Muslims of Canada, any sheikh that tells you voting is haram, any sheikh that tells you political activism is haram, I'll be gentle, just bypass that sheikh and move on. In this issue at least, overlook him. Jump over him and move on. With utmost love and respect, these opinions are disconnected from reality. Whether you like it or not, you are involved with the system. Your tax dollars are involved with the system. Your politicians are voted as a result of your own districts. You not voting is itself a stand, whether you like it or not. So it is not my job to tell you who to vote for because that's not my forte. It is my job to tell you these conversations need to take place at a public level. If I were you, maybe the masjid cannot do this, but in a, in a town hall or in hire a big hall there, call Muslims involved in this party, call Muslims involved in that party and have a civil dialogue for the Muslim community in public. Let us hear views about both parties. Let Muslims make their case to other Muslims. And 
let us have an adult conversation, a mature conversation. Because in the end of the day, I'm not gonna, I don't know your full parties that well. Let me speak about our parties, Republican and Democrats. Both are bad parties for us. Both are negative for us. I can honestly see an argument that people are saying that, you know, we should vote for the Republicans because at least they haven't done what they're doing in genocide. And I can see the argument that let's not vote Republican because they're going to try to kick us out. Let's vote for the third party called the Green Party in America, right? I can see a legitimate argument. But at this stage, I cannot see a legitimate argument for voting for the party that is calling for genocide. Me personally, I draw the line there. And I don't think we should be voting for anybody that has just increased aid to that apartheid regime for $15 billion. No. Our president unilaterally bombed the poorest of the poor countries, Yemen. Unilaterally. He went over Congress. I'm sorry, how can we support this person? So between the other two parties, we have a Green Party in America. And we have, uh, the, uh, I can see a legitimate argument. I'm not the one to decide here. Well, let's have a public debate about this. But one thing you cannot do is to be inactive. Wallahi, it is dhulm, O Muslims of Canada. 10% of this country, city is Muslim. 12%, 15% of Mississauga is Muslim. If all of us collectively came together, you would have an impact at the state level, at the district level, at the country level. And it will trickle down. So we have to be involved. The Muslims of France, I visited them a few years ago. Wallahi, my blood was boiling. 25% of Paris is Muslim. And politicians get voted into office by outrageous Islamophobic comments. The more outrageous, the more you stamp down the Muslims, the faster you'll get in voted. And I said to my guide, my friend that was their mentor friend, I was like... How can a politician get away with this? And he said, because the default position is that Muslims think voting is haram. And so by bashing the Muslims, he knows the far right will love him. He knows the Muslims are impotent, voiceless, nothing, you're going to do nothing. And so khalas, go ahead and bash the Muslims. They're not going to do anything unless rise up. So you don't think, and I'm not trying to be too sinister, you don't think that some of these people that are preaching the Muslims of France to not vote, that they have perks that they have with people that are telling them to have these views? I'm sorry to be sinister, but you don't think that that is the case? You really think that, coincidentally, the largest concentration of Muslims in the Western world is in Paris. And coincidentally, the default opinion that has been brewing in the ranks for three decades, four decades, is that voting is kufr. You don't think that there's a reason for this? And those that tried to, they were taken down, khalas, and we know what happened. So anyway, it's not getting too much controversy here, but it is what it is. Well, I open your eyes, open your eyes to this reality. And may Allah protect me and all of us in this regard. It is a dangerous world we live in, dangerous world we live in. We cannot go down that route. We cannot. We have a moral and ethical responsibility to be involved, however you're involved. That having been said, bird's eye view that I have, actually, even if generally we endorse one party versus the other, still at the 3D level, it is healthy to have some Muslims in all parties because we need to have some connection with whoever's in the office. 
even if I wouldn't want my brother or my friend to be in that party. Do you see my point here? The irony of ironies, it's a dirty job. And if somebody's doing it, it's better than nobody doing it. So even if we say one particular party is very evil and we say as a default, nobody should go there, we still know people are going to be in that party, correct? So to have some people that we have some connection with is better than to have nobody there in this regard. Wallahu a'lam. I don't, again, that's all I want to say in this, in this uh, case. And uh, let's move on to some other questions, inshallah ta'ala. What did I say, guys? 10 o'clock, right? So we have, inshallah, just another seven minutes, inshallah, and then move on. So um, it, what is the question of intersectarian marriage if the girl and boy are from different uh, strands of Islam? So this goes back to this goes back to multiple factors. By strands, they mean literally like Sunni Shia or something, not like within Sunnism. Listen, technically, the nikah is valid between all strands of Islam. So, Sunni and Shia, 12 or Shia, if they marry, this is a valid nikah. It's a valid nikah. The question though, is it wise or not? And my answer to this is, the more religious the people are, the less wise it is. Because when they're both religious, at some time they're going to have to decide which masjid they're going to take the kids to. It might be possible for a husband wife to eke out while they don't have kids. But what are you going to happen when kids come in the picture? So generally speaking, to have a marriage where religious understandings are radically different, not just religious, even finances, even you know gender roles, it's not just about religion. Marriage is based upon compatibility. And anywhere the husband and wife are severely incompatible about a major issue is going to destroy the, 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 the sanity of the marriage. And that includes religion. So it's one thing to say, is such a marriage valid or not? And I'll say, yes, it is valid. When will it not be valid? It will not be valid if the group is outside the fold of Islam. Which group is outside the fold of Islam? Any group that does not follow the kalima. La ilaha illa Muhammadur Rasulullah. So there's no ibadah to Allah or there's no belief in the finality of Muhammadur Rasulullah. Okay? So if a, if a firqa of Islam does not have worshipping Allah, there's a strand of Islam that they don't have any sharia, there's no salah, there's no siyam, there's no ibadah. They're not really Muslim. There's no la ilaha illallah. There's another strand. They believe in a prophet after the Prophet They're outside because they have rejected the kalima. So the nikah is not valid. By the way, even with those two strands that I don't consider to be Muslim, what's the point of fomenting hatred in a masjid? What's the point of constantly bashing them? Yeah, academically I say, any group that doesn't pray five times a day as a religion, any group that doesn't fast Ramadan, their people don't read the Quran. And some of you don't know, but there are there is a Muslim group like this, right? Any group that's like that, well, they're not really Muslim. If you're not going to pray, what Muslim are you, right? Similarly, any group that has a, a Prophet after the Prophet Muhammad we don't accept them. So a nikah between them would not be valid. Other groups, the nikah is valid, but is it wise? I say no, it is not wise. So I would not recommend this in this regard. Wallahu ta'ala alam. Question over here that um, uh, the... Some people are wondering that should we debate these other groups in public and they mention some movements or not. So in my humble opinion, the emphasis should not be on sectarian debates. Debates are like 
salt is to food. Just a little bit is good enough. And I myself try to live up to that reality. I don't debate other movements or groups. And once in a while, I need to clarify another movement. I gave a whole talk last year about the group that believes in a prophet after the Prophet Muhammad. I said, this is a red line. We cannot cross it. I gave a whole talk. But I have 3,000 lectures online. One of them I gave to that group. One. I gave another khutbah, respect to the Sahaba. And I generically said, any group that disrespects the Sahaba, they have made a major mistake and it hurts us and we don't like this. But I was polite, but I still, I was very clear what is going on. Out of all of my lectures, this is a few of them I mentioned, and I keep on bringing it respect of the Sahaba, but there is a way to do it without fomenting hatred. There's a way to do it with wisdom. I hope I'm trying to follow that. So I personally would not encourage debates online. Debates is a waste of time. It's like Netflix dramas, right? There's no point to it. Do something more productive. Find somebody who doesn't believe in any version of Islam and bring them to Islam. And as for those who have another understanding, realize one thing. When you debate with another person about an understanding of Islam, the fact of the matter is you can have a debate and after the debate, if you were to survey who won, chances are your group is going to say you won and his group is going to say he won. This is well known, by the way. And the reason for this is something called confirmation bias. Go look it up. It's a, another technolo- uh, psychological term, confirmation bias. I have a more academic talk in my library chats called The Reality of Debates. Listen to it. Debates serves more as a function to prove to your group that it is right rather than a function to convince the other group that it is wrong. Debates is a psychological tool that is used to prove to your group. In other words, your audience already wants you to win. Your audience thinks you have won. And that's why, let's be realistic. Sunni Shia, we have been debating for 12 centuries. Never once has there been a mass conversion of either to the other. Correct? Never once has there been a mass conversion because of a debate. What does it show you? Each side thinks my proofs are solid. And each side is certain my proofs are better than the other. And yet it doesn't seem to have the impact on the other side. So I would say that minimize one's debates and concentrate more on calling to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for those that are not following any strand of Islam. Inshallah, let us uh, finish up over here. Do we have to follow a sect? What if I just want to follow the Quran and Sunnah uh, of the Prophet So you don't have to follow a, 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 a sect, but the devil is in the details. It's like saying, do I have to you know, follow a doctor when I take medicine? I mean, if you don't follow a doctor, what else are you going to do? And even when you follow a doctor, there's various madhavs of medicine, by the way, right? You have allopathy, you have homeopathy, you have Eastern medicine, you have Western medicine, you have uh, science-based medicine. You have to follow a whole protocol school. You can't start from scratch. So in the theoretical level, one can say it is not wajib to follow a sect. Agreed. But the practicality, what are you going to do? You can't reinvent the wheel. You can't start from scratch when people have already built you know, skyscrapers. You can't start with a mud hut. It's already there. And therefore, it just makes sense that you just go with the flow. Now, 
If you ask me, the flow is generic Sunnism, Quran and Sunnah. By Sunnism, what do I mean? Respect for the Sahaba. That's what I mean. That's all. Because interestingly enough, guys, for the academic stuff, Sunnis themselves disagree about Iman in Allah and the Sifat controversy. Sunnis themselves disagree about Qadr. Sunnis themselves disagree about Fiqh. Sunnis themselves disagree about so many things. What combines all of Sunnism, believe it or not, it's not the Quran and Sunnah as much as it is the Sahaba. Interesting, isn't it, right? Because Sunnis disagree about how to interpret the Quran, uh, meaning Fiqh and, and the theology. Sunnis disagree about how to interpret Hadith, but they don't disagree the Sahaba should be respected. So me personally, I like this mainstream attitude, ecumenical attitude. Then within that, if you choose any sheikh who's not a fanatic, here's the point. Let's conclude with this one. In every strand of Islam, Salafis, Sufis, Deobandis, but all of them, list all of them. In every strand of Islam, you will find the moderates and you will find the hardliners. In every strand, you will find those that understand for the betterment of the ummah we need to come together at times and places and we will teach advanced stuff at times and places. This is moderate. And then you have the hardliners. The hardliners, we can never unite with anybody else. My advice to you, choose the strand that you like for whatever reason and find the moderates of that strand. That's my advice to you. Choose the strand you feel comfortable, whatever that strand is. As long as it is generic, worshipping Allah, following the sunnah of the Messenger of Allah, then you follow the kalima. After that, within that strand, I guarantee you, you will find open-minded intellectual ulama who understand the world we live in and who want to bring the ummah together upon good. Choose those ulama from within that strand. And as for the hardliners, just marginalize them because there's, they might be in their own world sincere, but hardline fanaticism is only going to burn you out and cause problems in the long run. Let us conclude our lectures by raising our hands to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and by making dua to Allah. Ya hayya ya qayyumu, ya dal jalali wal ikram, ya sami'ad dua, ya arhamar rahimin. Allahumma alif bayna qulubina. Allahumma alif bayna qulubina. Allahumma alif bayna qulubina. Allahumma alina al-haqqa haqqan warzukna attiba'a wa alina al-baatila baatila warzukna istinaba. Ihdina al-sirat al-mustaqim, ya hayya ya qayyum. Ihdina al-sirat al-mustaqim. صراط الذين أنعمت عليهم غير المغضوب عليهم ولا الضالين آمين وآخر دعوان الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين وجزاكم الله خيرا والسلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته فيا ذلي ويا خجلي إذا ما قال لي ربي أما استحييته تعصيني ولا تخشى من العتب وتخفي الذنب عن خلقي وتأبى في الهوى قربي فتب مما جنيت عسى تعود إلى رضاك